everyone! Welcome to Solocene. This week's episode is extra special because it's actually an interview with two of the editors of the book Degrowth and Strategy, How to Bring About Social Ecological Transformation. This book was an incredible read, in my opinion, because I've read a lot of degrowth books and they often focus on what's wrong, but this one really focuses on solutions, which is really great. It's also free, so the link to it will be in the description below. Yeah, I would definitely recommend this book to anyone who was a fan of our degrowth semester, which was the first in Soocene, and will always probably be at the core of everything that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we talk in a much more kind of generalized and I would say introductory or idealistic way, this book definitely is more of a gateway into legitimate strategy, as the name entails. So, as Alicia mentioned, the people we spoke to were Nathan Barlow and Livia Rajan, who were two of the editors of this book. The other editors we wanted to mention were Noemi Kadir, Ekaterina Shetskovskaya, Max Holweg, Christina Plank, Mel Shulkin, and Verena Wolf. So, it's a big collaboration between a lot of different people, all bringing different areas of expertise mm-hmm. around degrowth. And as Alicia said also, the book is available now. Yeah, so let's hop into it. The sound quality is a little bit sketchy, but I hope you will bear with it because the conversation was really enlightening and brings a bit of a different perspective when you do choose to read the book, a little bit of a behind the scenes. So I encourage you to give this a listen. Thank you so much. Despite the urgent need for systemic change and the many strong voices that call for it, we see very little consequential action. While many demands are simply being watered down by governments and corporate actors, Even as their discussion is often rather sophisticated with talks about a climate emergency, the circular economy, and the various governance frameworks to address the multifaceted crisis, we cannot expect change at the scale needed to come from those in power. Instead, the degrowth movement and allied groups need to think about how to organize strategically within and across their movements to shape the bottom-up social ecological transformation that would bring an equitable, ecologically sustainable and thriving world for all. So, hey everyone, welcome back to Solocene. That was an excerpt from the introduction to Degrowth and Strategy, How to Bring About Social Ecological Transformation. That's a new book. And today's episode is very special because for the first time we have guests. We're doing our first ever interview with Nathan Barlow and Livia Rijan, who are joining us live from Vienna. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having us. Um... All good here, a bit cloudy in Vienna, but otherwise fine. Thanks for joining us. We're going to read out a little bit of an introduction, and then we're going to get into the questions. Nathan and Livia are prominent members of the degrowth movement based in Europe. They have both studied policy and economics related to degrowth strategies and have contributed in many ways to the advancement of degrowth as a viable future. Their contributions include helping to organize the 2020 Degrowth Vienna Conference, actively working on degrowth.info, which is a website we referenced a lot during the first episodes of Solacene, and now being part of a team of editors for the new book I mentioned, Degrowth and Strategy, How to Bring About Social Ecological Transformation, which they are here to talk about today. This book was born out of a degrowth conference and features writing from many different contributors. It was successfully crowdfunded and is being published through Mayfly, Mayfly Publishing. It's going to be available in paperback, but also as a PDF. And it comes currently out of a 10-part blog series on strategy, which is on degrowth.info, if you're interested in checking out that as well. Um, the first season of Solacene was all about degrowth. And on that series, we took a bit of a more general and idealistic approach, kind of building a utopia for degrowth. But this book is a bit more of a granular and practical approach approach to implementing strategies and coming up with strategies to make our vision of the future kind of a reality, which I love and adore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, Aaron, you have the first question. Sure. I'll just mention that as of July, the book is available now, and we'll include a link to that in the description for listeners to find it. So the first question is for both of you, and it is, since we know that both of you have been dreaming of this book for a long time, and the team that you were a part of as well, after identifying the lack of strategy discourse within the movement, and what was the hardest part about making this book a reality? 
I can start off and try to talk a bit about um, the the ongoing tension, I would say, with with the process over the last year and a half with creating this book, and and I think um, has become uh, for many of us on the editorial team our our baby project that that we're uh, happy to see to fruition. Um, it's been the tension of, on the one hand, trying to um, ensure a certain quality and and um, uh, strength of the book in terms of coherence and, and nuance. And on the other hand, uh, a feeling of kind of urgency that the, the sooner this book can enter the discourse and influence the discussions within degrowth, the better. Um, but that maybe in terms of the, the quality, it would be uh, beneficial for the book to take its time to come to maturity. So for me, it was a constant balancing act of feeling the real uh, desire to see the book out there as soon as possible. And on the other hand, to be patient and, and give it the time it needed to, to become a, a finished polished product, which, which hopefully it, it finally is. Livia, how about from your side? Um, I would, I would definitely agree with what you said. Um, maybe two things uh, that spring to mind in addition. Um, I think what, what I found um, very uh, challenging was to make sure the book has both um, breadth and depth. So we were trying on the one hand to create depth for the degrowth movement to discuss questions such as how should the degrowth movement organize internally? What might be next steps to take? Um, what could decision making structures look like in a movement that is relatively scattered um, and rather in uh, a network than, than uh, movement. And secondly, we, um, on the other hand, we were trying to um, create breadth, um, breadth through basically um, bringing in a range of fields. Um, I guess we'll discuss that more later, but uh, including um, mobility, trade, work, care, food, and so on, and discussing strategies that have worked in these um, fields and that also strategies that failed in order to learn from them and extrapolate as something meaningful for um, a uh, yeah big growth future. Yeah, that's great. I feel like with most social ecological movements, it's that balance of, hey, we want to make the biggest impact possible with our work. We want it to be great, but it's also super time sensitive. So you can't just spend 20 years on it because then by the time it's finished, it might just be irrelevant. And I found you guys did a really excellent job in this book of, yeah, doing the breadth and the depth because the further I got along and end reading, I was like, whoa, you mentioned technology and you mentioned yeah. the care economy, which was, I didn't know you were going to be able to cover all that in such a kind of short book. You really, you really did it. Yeah, I would say um, you definitely achieved the breadth and the depth and it is concise, as we should mention. And also what's impressive is that I found the text quite accessible. Like I'm not super well-versed in degrowth literature, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I found it very readable, which is a, a definitely a good thing as well. Um, the next question I have is also for you both, and it is, if you could get the concept of degrowth into the hands of 10 people or a demographic, who would you choose? I certainly think some kind of um, policymakers, people having power in institutions that are relevant and that uh, are specifically of relevance for decision making that relates to um, not only the short term future, um, uh, long term future. And so um, I think, you know, um, given that we are based in Vienna, what comes to my mind first would be uh, the European Union and perhaps the European Commission. I'm looking, for example, at the European Green Deal as a green growth strategy that is entirely unfit to meet the climate targets um, that were agreed upon uh, in the Paris Agreement. I wish that people like uh, Ursula von der Leyen and others would um, be aware of um, the um, utopia of green growth. And um, yeah, I, I think that would be a good starting point. Um, so some high officials in the European Commission, I guess. How about you, Nathan? 
Um, yeah, this is a, a tricky question because I think it's um, a tension between who we would like to uh, be familiar with degrowth and who we think it's maybe realistic that if they got in touch with degrowth, the idea would resonate with them. Um, and, and from my perspective, I think there's a lot of people who, if they got in touch with the idea of degrowth, the idea would actually resonate a lot with, uh, with them and, and their frustrations and their concerns. And I think that's something that, um, we see more and more with, with people voting for, um, let's say more radical, uh, political parties, both on the left and the right, that that people are desperately grasping for for significant change to the current political and economic system. Um, sometimes in a more fascist direction, and sometimes in a more emancipatory socialist direction. Um, and and I think degrowth has a lot to offer both of these groups of people that are seeking um, radical political and economic change, because I think degrowth um, very well articulates a lot of the, the concerns and frustrations that these people often have, but maybe cannot name or, or don't have the vocabulary to specify. And um, I also have made the experience that just sharing the idea of degrowth with my family members who very much don't have the, an education in, in social and political and ecological issues, um, they very quickly pick up many of the core ideas of degrowth because it resonates with their everyday frustrations and, and their uh, kind of inner feeling that some larger systemic change is needed. The other group that I think would uh, benefit from more engagement with the ideas of degrowth um, from the context of the U.S., which I'm more familiar with, would be the the kind of emerging um, democratic socialist wing of the Democratic Party, and um, in general, also this kind of Marxists that um, are are gaining a lot of popularity in the U.S. and are influential, especially with the Jacobin magazine. And I think there, there's still a lot of hopes around decoupling and green growth and i think the this kind of uh, group of, of people in political leaning would also benefit through engagement with with degrowth ideas thanks yeah i certainly found when i came across degrowth as a concept it was super accessible and it yeah just like put words to things that people mm. feel like as you said, I bring this concept to my parents, for example, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's the feeling I have. But it's kind of frustrating to like everything be filtered through the news or for us to not be able to just walk to the store anymore because it's five kilometers away. And it just it's a better umbrella than people who would say, well, I'm not happy with the current system. But if the alternative is Marxism or the alternative is, I don't know, like fascism then they don't want any of those alternatives. But degrowth is a really, like, <laughs> lovely alternative, I yeah. find. I think it has almost a universal appeal. And Nathan, I liked that you were making the connection between degrowth and kind of ex extreme or more extreme uh, political voters. And I think even along those lines, there's, there's another group, which is the people who are completely disenfranchised with politics, the group who don't vote at all. I think degrowth, part of its appeal is that it, it's good at kind of capturing the imagination for a lot of people, but also putting a a tangible political name to something that, as Alicia mentioned, we all have the feeling for. Yeah. So the next question is, we often feel at protests that there needs to be one thing everything is, everyone is asking for, similar to the motivation behind this book, that there is no strategy. What are a few things you would like to see protests, speaking mainly of the general climate marches, asking for? I can try and speak to that. Uh, you know, answers would be different depending on which social movement you ask. Um, so I believe that there's probably some common ground that can be reached across movements. The question is just how um, abstract versus concrete would that be? I think um, there's this um, Berlin-based uh, philosopher, Eva van Redeker, and she basically says that um, the current uh, arrangement of uh, economic production, so She's a, she's a bit more explicit. She says simply capitalism um, destroys life. And I think um, 
that is something that across movements uh, agreement could be reached on um, something like freeing ourselves from oppressive structures and from systems of exploitations that destroy life and with destroying life uh, it's not only um, so all forms of life basically that includes uh, labor exploitation but also and uh, the destruction of ecosystems destruction of the global climate and so on um, and um, but then again there's certainly a trade-off between demanding something that uh, different movements can agree to and then on the other hand not becoming too unspecific or abstract but um, what we tend to observe quite a bit in Vienna is that the local Fridays for Future movement is um, trying probably for very good reasons to get as many people on board as possible but that also sometimes can have the effect of them putting out demands that are um, rather mild, say, a tax reform or something like that. And I think that's, that's good. But I think that from a degrowth perspective, what we would probably wish for is to see at those climate marches more direct critiques of extractivism, expansionism, productivity, how the constant sort of like... Um, aim for um, generating higher profits and um, basically um, having as the core social goal to grow economically, that this is inherently destructive. I think um, that's something we would like to see more um, in climate marches. Mm -hmm. So to have also system critique and not to demand mild reforms within the existing system. Yeah, that's... That's certainly well put. I appreciate that so much because when this first struck us, we were at a women's march and then there was just a little section of people protesting against climate change. There's a little section of people obviously advocating for women's rights and so on. And it just felt like perhaps if they had coordinated better, I suppose, they would have been like very impactful if they were all chanting for like something specific, like, promotion of well-being or promotion of equitable pay or whatever it may be for that movement. And yeah, it seems like a very degrowth thing for it to be localized. Obviously, there's no blanket statement of every protest for climate should be asking for this one thing because it depends on where you are, which is, yeah, super degrowth to me. And so this is kind of related to that question, but I was wondering um, if you feel that degrowth is a title that many movements could rally underneath, or do you feel it's best for all of these separate movements to remain unique and have their own titles? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'm totally with you on that. Um, I, I fully agree that um, perhaps something that, that should be made explicit um, also from my side is that um, the, the um, and, and actually in our book, um, uh, Corinna Burkhardt, Tony Notion, Matthias Schmelzer and Nina Troy write about this. Um, they basically speak about the necessity to make intersectional justice a topic uh, in the climate justice sphere. Um, and, and basically to draw attention to the fact that the climate crisis is um, not just an ecological problem, um, but it's um it's a racist sexist and classes crisis and that emerges from a system that is exactly based on these um dimensions of uh, oppression and exploitation and so i fully agree with you that i think there could be so much common ground found between you know the women's march between um, um black lives matter between the climate justice movement if if there was more um better structures or networks in place to coordinate these. Um, I don't think, though, that they necessarily all need to rally under the, the, the name of Degra. I think, um, I think that um, degrowth is, can offer a useful critique as it looks at the root causes underlying the climate crisis so economic growth as the reason why we find ourselves in 
actually not just the climate crisis, but a multiple crisis that has several dimensions that also include social crises. Um, and, and that also arguably includes um, health crises such as the current pandemic. Um, uh, yeah, and so I think um, what, what, we, what we tried to do um, last year was we organized a panel where we invited a representative from different social movements in Vienna, including representatives from Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, Friends of the Earth. Uh, no, wait, that's not true, not Friends of the Earth. Um, some other groups, uh, for example, system change, not climate change, that's a local group. And we got the impression that on the one hand, they would share the critique of economic growth and they would sort of share many of the core values with the degrowth movement, but they were very skeptical about using degrowth in their communication um, for different reasons. Some of them just thought that this would not appeal to their kind of audience. Some of them thought that that would um, prevent them from collaborating well with, uh, say, for example, local politicians or something like that. Uh, some of them simply thought that that was too abstract and too academic, perhaps, too. So I'm just to wrap this up. Sorry, that, that was a bit much, but I guess it's very complex. And I, I don't think that degrowth, you know, it should be the banner, but I think it can inspire useful um, uh, ideas and add meaningful perspectives to other social movements. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's a very like humble movement. It's not like you want it to be plastered everywhere. That's kind of the point of it, so that it isn't co-opted, which we'll get into, I think, pretty soon. But also, I feel like what degrowth kind of brings to all of these different people that you collaborate with is a drawing of a, their attention to the well-being side of things like a bit in the book the part that really like stuck with me is the chapter on technology where you use the example of the low-tech magazine and they say not everything has a high-tech solution and I feel like that's really what degrowth kind of like reminds people of is that hey we don't just have to like we can look backwards we can look inwards and like well-being improvement really should be the overall and goal well-being of the planet, but also of people and our mental health and everything. And that's what I feel like you really bring to all of these other movements. Yes, I, d I definitely think the, the future as a kind of collaborate, collaboration between aligned movements while respecting each uh, unique identity is, uh, is probably the way to go. We've talked a little bit. Sorry. No worries. I was just going to add one small thing on that is that I think also the degrowth movement and degrowth um, scholars have a, an internal uncertainty themselves about to what extent the, the term degrowth is an effective political slogan. It's, I think, been an ongoing internal discussion about the effectiveness of, of degrowth as um as something more than just an academic concept or a problematization of the economic system and, and whether it's even useful for, for any kind of, uh, political activity, even, um, by degrowth actors themselves, never mind for, for other actors. So I think, um, this is something that probably the degrowth movement should get internal clarity on before also looking outward and, and thinking about if it makes sense for, for other movements. That was one of the parts of the book that resonated with me because Nathan, even in, in your chapter, you wrote about defining degrowth as a strategy, as a goal or as a quality. And that's something that I noticed uh, on our podcast on Solacene when we were doing our series on degrowth, we would even sometimes the way we use the word would, would change within an episode or even within a sentence. Like mm -hmm. I think Alicia's already said today, oh, that's so degrowth, using it as an adjective, but you can also use it as, as a noun or you can also use it as like a, a verb almost, like we're going to degrowth this, which is funny. So, and that leads into the next question, which is, this book talks a lot about resisting co-option. Can you explain this concept and why it is so important? Yeah, I can try to, to take a stab at this question that I think is um, a, a very um, old question, an old political question that I think I cannot do justice to, but I will do my best to, to draw out some of the insights that one of the authors in the book and actually also an editor in, in the editorial team uh, wrote about, um, and her name is Ekaterina Chertikovskaya, and she wrote 
the second chapter of the book, which um, lays out the the work of Eric Olin Wright and his work on on transformation and on strategies for transformation. And it was one of the kind of guiding frameworks that we used to think about strategy within Degrowth Vienna before creating the book during the, the days of the conference. And it was a framework that then we we brought forward in, when thinking about the book. And, and it was also very helpful to share with authors and encourage them to think explicitly about strategy in a way that I think um, uh, supported the conceptualization of, of thinking about degrowth and strategy for a lot of our contributors. However, um, one key idea within this um, work on on strategy is this balancing within specific sh- strategies of on the one hand influencing um, key structures of society and on the other hand avoiding to be co-opted by by these structures and and this refers specifically to the approach that Eric and Wright describes as a um, symbiotic transformation and this implies um, uh, of the three logics um, symbiotic interstitial and um, ruptural symbiotic is the the approach to transformation that most um, emphasizes trying to work within existing um, institutions and and um, let's say uh, powerful actors and working with and against them to simultaneously reform the system and transform it. And, and therefore there's two simultaneous um, uh, str- kind of strategic uh, logics at play, that of taming capitalism and the current economic system. And on the other hand, dismantling. And, and if we think of uh, something like a universal basic income, we can see how on the one hand, this is a, policy that could very much lead to um, a simple taming of the worst harms of our current system by giving people access to a basic uh, income to to meet their basic needs. Um, But if they then, these people in their free time, don't really do political work, they don't um, kind of organize and work towards a different world, um, then this could be a, um, a co-opted action because the the initial ambition and uh, the initial ambition of something like a universal basic income, which maybe has transformative motivations, uh, is is kind of reduced and toned down in its radicality. Um, and in contrast, we can imagine how the implementation of a universal basic income if it's then manifested in the way that people use their free time to um, politically organize and build um, new coalitions and alliances to create an alternative world, then this goes much more in the direction of dismantling the current uh, structures and and this would be avoiding co-optation. So what the the term co-optation kind of, draws attention to throughout the book is the the need on the one hand for strategies towards transformation to engage powerful actors and powerful structures else they maybe risk being marginalized but the closer that they get to these centers of power the the greater the chance is for them to be conformed into the logics of the system and, and co-opted into it and and this is then something for each uh, uh, project and initiative and and movement to reflect on how to maintain this balance and be self-aware of this this present potential. Great. That just taught me very quite a lot because <laughs> I originally learned about degrowth in the context of like a business degree. And so when they introduced resisting co-option, they split they only used it as an example of, hey, you don't want to use degrowth because or Degrowth is a really powerful word because you're not going to have like Nespec or Nestle using it as like a slogan the way that they've kind of co-opted sustainability and like other kind of like greenwashing techniques. So that is much more in-depth than what I was originally taught that meant. Yeah, I think we we 
like co-option has a has a rather narrow definition of the public, which is kind of what we should describe, which is just mm-hmm. advertising. Yeah. But there, as you mentioned, there are other actors and other uh, deeper ways in which terms can can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is another question for you, Nathan. You wrote chapter three, which is cool, and it begins to kind of reconcile all the previous literature and conversation on degrowth strategy. Um, with the concepts that are then discussed in this book. So I was wondering if you could answer your own question, which you posed in this chapter, and that is, is degrowth a strategy, a goal, or a quality, which we just kind of alluded to before, but how would you how would you answer that, perhaps? Yeah, thanks. And um, I'm now a bit nervous. I'm wondering if I need to relook at what I wrote and, and see if I, <laughs> I managed to answer it clearly or not. Um what I what I try to do there um, by by outlining these three different usages of of degrowth in relation to strategy is to make it clear that um, there has been many different usages and that the meanings are are sometimes blurry or convoluted, which obscures the possibility to have maybe more constructive conversations about. Uh, degrowth in relation to to strategy. So, if we look at the the three usages that I described, the first is that degrowth is a strategy in itself, and and I think this um, relates well to the discussion earlier about cooptation and how degrowth is a very um, strategic term in itself because it's so difficult to co-opt and because it has this notion of being a missile concept or a missile word, which which Andre Gortz had had talked about. And um, it really problematizes this notion of economic growth and for, forces people to to rethink it. Um, so I think there's there's um, convincing reasons that the degrowth itself is a strategy the in regards to degrowth being a goal i think there's also a lot written in the degrowth literature about degrowth as a strategic horizon or or a kind of um utopia to to work towards and i think this is one of the real strengths of degrowth is that it goes beyond just a critique of society, but also advocating for for what the future society could look like. Um, and hopefully our book puts itself in, in the middle of those two by, by then also saying how we get to that new society. And thirdly, I think that degrowth is also a quality because it has key uh, principles and values underlying it um, that then can be used to to think about a strategy. So principles like care, solidarity, and and autonomy. Um, and and I think the kind of next step that I hope this book makes a contribution to is for degrowth to get more conceptual clarity about how it talks about strategy. Um, because I think this conceptual clarity is needed um before the the more challenging questions of kind of what strategies do people perceive as most um desirable and effective can take place i think first there needs to be um a, a common understanding of of the relationship between these these terms of of degrowth and strategy that's really great. I found your chapter definitely did answer the question, but I thought it'd be a good little trailer for people listening because I feel like that's probably the first question people have once they learn a little bit about degrowth is like, well, what is it? Like, is it a yeah. adjective? Is it a strategy or whatever? So I feel like that's a good little intro and then people can then jump into the whole book from there. I think it's the versatility of the term or the, the movement degrowth. It can be a strength because it can appeal in so many different ways, but also um, moving forward, as you mentioned, with uh, needing to find a kind of an internal clarity on it, it might that that flexibility and that unsurety about what exactly it is um, among different groups of people might be a weakness because it can mean it it can be quite an evasive term uh, politically and also uh, in the popular sense. I think. So the next question, I think you both mentioned Eric Owen Wright's uh, work and his different types of strategy, which were interstitial, symbiotic, and ruptural. The question is, he wrote a book entitled Envisioning Real Utopias, where he outlined the framework for those three different types of strategy. Um, So as your team wrote in the introduction to the Degrowth and Strategy book, plurality alone is not a strategy. 
how would you sum up the role of each type of strategy that's interstitial, symbiotic, and ruptural in the degrowth movement? Yeah, I, I can begin by maybe briefly sketching why the, the editorial team wrote that uh, plurality alone is not a strategy, which I think is an excellent phrase. I did not write it, but I'm <laughs> very much happy with, with the phrase because I think it captures a lot the motivations um, for this book, but but also already the, the Vienna Degrowth Conference. Uh, which tried to target this question of strategy and its relation to, to degrowth by problematizing the assumption that I think was present in degrowth that the plurality is a strategy in itself and is adequate as a strategy. Um, and, and I think there's maybe three reasons that come to mind that why plurality alone isn't a strategy. And, and I think on the, in the first place, I think plurality does not imply that much about whether the actions are, are coordinated. It just implies that there's a multiplicity. And, and I think that this is um, uh, missing a big um, kind of opportunity for, for emphasizing the necessity for coordinated action to, to make effective change. Because I think Plurality alone, um, without coordination, uh, kind of has a, an unfulfilled hope that suddenly these uh, dispersed actions will spontaneously come together to to uh, interlink or fit together in in some uh, mosaic. But I think so far uh, this is not materialized. And secondly, I think that plurality does not make a distinction between. Um, effectiveness or adequacy. So it kind of risks relative, relativizing all actions as contributing equally to a social ecological transformation. And I think that this, um, is, is very unlikely to be the case, although it's difficult to prove because we don't have a lot of good methods for really specifying what does and doesn't contribute and how much to a transformation. Um, but I think it's it's reasonable to assume that that some actions and projects contribute more than others to to transformative change. And I think um, plurality alone does um, obfuscates the different contributions that the different um, actions can make. And and therefore we should try to have some kind of clear criteria about what plurality means for the degrowth movement. And thirdly. I think that plurality alone is not a useful strategy because we can see within degrowth conflicting proposals and suggestions for how to achieve a transformation. For example, uh, more eco-anarchist approaches versus uh, more eco-socialist approaches with the central question of the state um, implied there um, in, in contentious or conflicting ways. And I think that if degrowth doesn't address this, the, these conversations will just be, be postponed and and the necessary discussions about which actions and paths we as degrowth activists and scholars find most desirable um, will will not um, will not take place maybe at a moment like we are in now where there is still the space to have these kind of conversations and debates and and therefore I think the current plurality and degrowth is sometimes contradictory. And I think it's worthwhile to interrogate these contradictions and, and try to get some some degree of coherence without having total coherence. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Livia, do you have any thoughts on this idea? I I think so I, I very much agree with what Nathan just said. Maybe just an add on to elaborate a bit more on. Uh, what you also asked about, which is which role the different types of strategy play uh, in um, in the movement. And I think we can only speak about what, um, no, I think there's, there's probably two approaches. So I think there's, there's on the one hand, the um, the academic discussion about which kind of strategies, you know, should perhaps be talked about more. Um, 
for example, and should also be actively considered by the degrowth movement. For example, Ekaterina Tchaikovskaya says in her chapter that um, it is essential for the degrowth uh, movement and also for other social movements to um, consider the option of ruptural strategies more actively um, and also argues that it might in fact actually become uh, necessary and also more ethically justified to engage with ruptural strategies and um, the, so initially Eric Olin Wright uses the term as um, rupture in a in a sense that would essentially unhinge the basics of, of capitalism um, but the way we talk about rupture in this publication is more about uh, rupture that can also be spatially or temporarily limited. So, for example, um, things like um, squatting or any kinds of occupations. Um, also, for example, uh, rearrangements that involve um, rethinking the basics of capitalism such as ownership structures um but probably not for the entire system at once but you know um rethinking ownership structures in certain sectors or in certain localities um would be a, a starting point um i think in general we have the impression and also the degrowth movement is somewhat uh infamously known for interstitial strategies, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, just it's a rather, I think, one-dimensional depiction of the degrowth movement. Uh, interstitial strategies would be strategies that happen um, in the interstices of uh, capitalism, meaning, you know, small niches in which alternative ways of uh, living um, uh, experienced and practiced such as eco-villages, uh, repair workshops, community gardens and so on. But I think these really only, um, you know, while those might be the simplest to implement in the existing system, these are by far not the only ones the deep growth movement is concerned with. And what we find um, actually uh, a lot in the publication when uh, you look at part two, and their scholars try to outline possible uh, strategic ways forward in different fields, such as work, mobility, energy technology, care, and trade, and so on. And there we actually see that lots of scholars propose symbiotic strategies of some kind. Um, that means using also legal tools and also potentially, you know, involving um, involving institutions involving uh, states and so on to bring about change. Um, those would be, for example, you know, bans of certain things, rent caps, um, introduce, but also more introducing wage for house wages for housework and and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like what this book really does is it kind of builds that next step from and bridges the gap between the traditional degrowth academics and the small scale, like super localized movements. And it tries to draw people's imagination to this place of what else can we do? What can we do more? And also like make people feel involved in it, perhaps, because I feel like if you look at it from the outside, you might think this is a very um, academic and theoretical concept, but what this book, with all of its examples and case studies and the whole part two about like strategies and practice, it really says, oh, this is something tactile, which we are all about on our podcast. We always talk about like making things tactile, kind of taking them out of the conceptual. And degrowth as a movement often, I feel like, is really inextricable from the conferences that you folks help hold. And I was wondering if there's like a reason you think that's the case and if that's kind of has to do with the tangibility of this movement. Yeah, thanks for the question. And I think this is um, related a lot to the origins of, of degrowth and it very much was in 
an intellectual idea and, a, and, and an intellectual project in the first place. Um, and I think that's why it was very intuitive for, for the first conference to take place, I think in, oh, what year was it? Maybe Livia can, can help me out. I think 2004 was maybe the first conference. And, and ever since then, the conferences have kind of been a recurring, um, space for the degrowth uh, community of, of researchers and activists to to gather on the one hand as academics and host um, uh, paper presentations and also workshops and panel discussions but also to to kind of coalesce into a community and and build closer ties and have this kind of network quasi movement dimension uh, begin to emerge and i think now um over 15 years since uh, the first conference has happened we we do see that the degrowth uh, community of quasi activist researchers is increasingly having the potential to look something more like a loose movement and and there's small organizations kind of popping up around degrowth that that maybe have the ambition or or uh, have the capacity to shift it more in the direction of of a, a loose movement um and the degrowth.info uh, chapter in the book um talks a lot about the potential of something which they call a degrowth international um as a kind of body to um um, mediate discussions internally within the degrowth community about strategic questions and strategic considerations. And, and there they put forth a lot of great considerations for how to intentionally create a space like a degrowth international that, that would help to also ensure that if the degrowth community wants to proactively pursue certain strategies, that it's done in a way that's in line with, with degrowth principles. Um, so I think this is already one sign that there's motivation to kind of move beyond the conferences. Um, there's also the Degrowth Movement Assembly, which will actually take place in Vienna this year. And that's a, a, a recurring space where, where the degrowth uh, community of more activist-oriented actors gathers and, and exchanges and, and tries to coordinate and, and act more collectively together. And there's been more interest and in, in motivation to that uh, project in the recent years. And, and also the research in degrowth, which is based in Barcelona and a lot of the um, kind of, let's say, older uh, known degrowth scholars are a part of that community. And, and that collective is also pushing to become a more institutionalized kind of think tank um, with, with organizing capacity. So I think right now the, the degrowth community is sort of in flux and, and it's not that clear um, if it makes sense for the degrowth community to move away from this conference and academic model or rather to push for a more activist and movement-based approach. Um, at the moment, there's a lot more uh, resources and attention for the academic dimension because it's within the logic of, of the universities and within the logic of research projects, etc. Whereas the uh, more organizational dimension of, of the degrowth movement is under-resourced and underfunded and a lot of volunteers and precarity. So I think that if the, the degrowth community decides to go in one direction or the other, they should be intentional about this. And, and hopefully there's the space in the coming years for having this kind of more open dialogue about what would be the strategic direction that makes most sense for, for the degrowth community to take and, and decide whether we want to continue being a, a, a conference-based uh, community or, or something else. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate and, and kind of enjoy reading all the academic background that degrowth has. I think with Solacene, one of our goals was to not be of that background was to make it a little bit more accessible and more kind of um, art artistic in a way, but I do appreciate the conferences and the, the academic background. I think that's really great. I liked in the book, the chapter on digital technology that Alicia already mentioned. I think that was one of my favorites for 
kind of illustrating how degrowth can manifest in ways that it often uh, maybe hasn't in the past. Um, Alicia already mentioned the Low Tech magazine. I think that was probably my, the, the case study that stuck with me the most from the book. Um, my next question for you guys is, what was your favorite case study used in the book? I think um, one one case I really like a lot, um, and I did a close reading of because I edited that chapter, is um, um, the case study in the work chapter. Um, written by Haliki Krainen and uh, Tahir Latif. Um, it's on the Deathwick Green New Deal plan. So essentially, that is an example for um, not only an example of um, actors from different um, institutions collaborating to bring about transformative change, but also different strategic approaches according to Eric Ollenwright working together to um, to bring about change. And, and what happened was that um, um, uh, the PCS union, so a, a labor union for public and commercial services in the UK, uh, worked with think tanks and campaign groups to create an alternative employment plan for uh, people currently employed at the Gatwick airport. Um, they were expecting that in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, there would be massive job cuts. And so in this alternative employment plan, they identified 16,000 jobs. And I think the fascinating thing about that is that they would cost less than half of the annual tax break that this airport currently receives. And so actually, th this is just the numbers. What I find way more fascinating is that people got together and thought about um, what would be required to retrain people. And then they actually saw that, that you know, that there's actually sometimes it might not be too big a deal uh, the cabin crew could be, for example, uh, transferred to care services as they, they are trained uh, to do that to some degree. Uh, engineers could uh, be partially retrained to and move into energy provision or um, upgrading uh, buildings and public transport. And what started as an interstitial strategy in Gatwick um, gained traction also in other communities for example, around the Heathrow Airport or the Leeds uh, Bradford Airport. And, and they also started creating alternative employment plans there. And then that sort of had a spill on effect to other single industry dependent communities um, that kind of joined forces with um, those um, uh, groups that were in, in favor of the transformation of work in, in the aviation uh, industry. And um, so you could say that this started as an interstitial uh, strategy, but then um, also local communities started supporting that, local councils actually started engaging that, also members of the parliament uh, engaged with these ideas. And so um, it, it's still an ongoing process and we don't, don't really know about the outcome yet, but um, this seems to be a very promising case of an interstitial strategy starting and potentially bringing about symbiotic change by transpiring into um, policymaking areas. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, there's the other case of uh, fishermen against Shell that is probably, uh, yeah, historically unique and also discussed a lot in, in the legal sphere. Um, and that's interesting also for the degrowth movement, I think, to um, to uh, think about strategies also in terms of potentially using legal tools. Um, um, so that's written by Goodwin Osho, uh, which I think is also one of my favorite cases. So you see, really see, I have a hard time picking one, and that's why I completely overthought the answer. No, I appreciate the answer. Um, there's so many case studies in this book, and it really brings to life all the things that you folks lay out, like in the theory, and you give examples, and I think it really just makes it hit home. And I appreciated that you didn't shy away from using the examples that, like, 
for the car sharing example, that it appears on the surface as a very degrowth idea, but then in practice and sometimes it just kind of backfires. And I like that you used all of this variety within the examples. And our final question for you is, um, how has degrowth changed your lifestyle or has it? And if it has, how so? Yeah, I can try to to start off on this. And I think part of the the initial reaction is that maybe I think degrowth is not just about changing one's lifestyle, but also more um, changing how one perceives the world and what kind of change is necessary. So to to shift to this more systemic perspective that that realizes maybe that also lifestyles are embedded within the economy and the political system, um, which for me means that um, degrowth as an individual very much changed my my. I would say life, because once I came into contact with this topic, I really was inspired and, and had the feeling that it brought together a lot of different threads for me that, that I was in, um, learning about in my studies. And, and, and in that sense, I think degrowth helped me to, to kind of channel my activism, my political work, my paid and my professional work into a, a common direction that could hopefully make a small, small contribution to the systemic change that I think many of us want to see and that we, we collectively struggle for. Um, and it helped me see a space where I could try to, to contribute to that. Um, and for this reason, I'm really appreciative for, for what degrowth can offer both as an idea, as an emerging concept, um, or sorry, an emerging academic field, and, and also as a, as a young movement. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for kind of, um, giving the space to, to talk and share about this, because I think it's, um, this book is very much, uh, been the, the kind of, uh, main political or academic project for the last two years for, for many of us on the editorial team. So I think I can say that it changed our life in the last two years <laughs> because it, it uh, took a lot of time and energy from us, but, but hopefully this uh, shows in the book. Yeah, I can imagine it really just kind of overwhelmed your day-to-day life for the last two years. Um, Livia, sorry, I cut you off there. I think I think the question of, of lifestyle is is tricky in general. Um, uh, given that lifestyles tend to be heavily defined by the structures around them. Um, as you said at the very beginning, you know, if the next supermarket is like five uh, kilometers away from where you live, then um, you might um, yeah, just sometimes be forced to not walk or cycle there if you if you want to buy more stuff. So I think. This is just a very sort of simple illustration of um, lifestyles um, as a as a category um, being heavily shaped by um, sort of like the, the macrosphere around them, and um, as the as the German philosopher Theodor said, there's no right life within the wrongs, and um, while while I'm generally aware of uh, and conscious of my consumption patterns and political uh, choices and, and work, I think there's always the danger of falling into the trap of focusing too much on on the micro level, and and you know almost giving too much power to oneself vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the the powerful strategy, uh, the powerful sort of structures that prevent us from perhaps uh, realizing strategies that would um, go against them and. Um, I think degrowth as a critique and idea has, however, made me aware a lot of, of um, on the one hand, values that, that can be lived practices, such as, um, you know, um, care, solidarity, um, finding alternative solutions to things that are on the fringes of capitalism, and then in very personal terms, what I became aware of is that there's also lots of internalized patterns of capitalism um, and, and growth, such as uh, productivity and how, how we assess our self-worth um, based on uh, 
how productive we are on a given day. And and so um, if, if you ask me if, if degrowth has my lifestyle, then I would say, well, I think if in the way it has changed my lifestyle is that I now think it is a political choice to sometimes not work, to slow down, to rest. Yeah, and that's probably it. Yeah, that's really powerful. I liked that you really highlighted that like, yeah, there can't be, like you could make all the right choices in your daily life, but it's still not going to like kind of change the bigger scale. And I feel like we can certainly get caught up in that. Like, oh, is my diet correct? Am I biking enough? Am I using the train too often or whatever? And I think that's something to remember. And I like that you said using rest is kind of a political tool because that's, <laughs> Always nice to remember. <laughs> yeah, I really like that quote you just cited, Livia, which is there's no right life within the wrong. I think that can be almost be kind of a like a foundational uh, quote for, for degrowth, at least in the way that I understand it. And I also liked how you both um, highlighted the fact that, and that we should just reiterate that lifestyles are almost entirely embedded within existing systems, mm-hmm. infrastructure, both built and kind of social. So those are all the questions that we had for you today. Um, again, the book is called Degrowth and Strategy, How to Bring About Social Ecological Transformation. I really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like I learned a lot about degrowth yeah. and also from reading the book. Um, so if anyone listening would like to read the book, it's available for free, right, isn't it? On the Mayfly website. So we can definitely we'll pop the link in below the episode. And I hope you all enjoyed listening. And thank you guys so, so much for joining us. Thank yeah. you so much for having us. It was really enjoyable. Thanks a lot for the nice questions. Really clear that you both took a lot of time and energy to to look into the book. So thanks again. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.